Okay, great guys episode 30 of the red hawk recap damn 30 already dude 30 fucking weeks I i'm pumped we've done this one because it's got a completely different dynamic i feel like than the, than the timbo sugar show i think the timbo sugar show has a kind of a, a i wouldn't say maybe a younger audience so maybe they wouldn't like some of the guests that i have on here um like we were supposed to have carnivore md last week but there was some some mix up, so maybe I'll have Carnivore MD on this this pod, and then um, today's podcast we're gonna have uh, Paul Check on. Um, he's been one of my teachers, and Mariah's kind of like teachers for probably I think coming up four years now. He's an internationally renowned expert in holistic health, fitness, personal develop, and he's the host of the uh, podcast Living Four D. But uh, we yeah, we got to go out to his house one time and see how his house is and kind of see how he lives. And he's just, I don't know, I, I've resonated with him a lot. I, I've, I've learned so much shit from him. So for him to be able to just come on my podcast and be able to come talk for an hour, I'm super pumped about it. But uh, yeah, we're in the process of building a new studio. So this isn't going to be my permanent spot. This is the Timbo Sugar Show spot. But right next door, we're going to have the, the Red Hawk recap. And uh, Marcelo, who paints, who does all our paintings, probably one of my favorite favorite artists, and he's our tattoo artist. Also, he's done my paintings at my gym. He's gonna paint up the Red Hawk recap, so I'm pumped to see how it looks. And then next week we're gonna have, who do we have? Oh yeah, David Bulldog Mashad, Native American kid. Um, he made it to the finals in the PFL. A super good fighter, Division One wrestler. Um, a really good fighter, good athlete, and just an overall good human being. He's going to come on. He had to kind of abruptly retire from MMA because he had this heart condition. He went in and the doctor's like, okay, hey, your heart rate can't go over. I forgot what it was, like 120 or something, or you have a potential to die. But um, if you guys want to support the podcast, like I said, we're not making any money from sponsors right now. But like I said, I'm I'm doing it because I enjoy it. But patreon.com slash Red Hawk Academy. Sometimes the pods come out early, but there's extra content going up there all the time. And archived uh, um, hundreds of different videos that you won't see anywhere else. And that's where I communicate most with the people. So I know there's people that message on Instagram and stuff. I don't really reply on there that much. But if you're on Patreon, then I'll, I'm guaranteed to reply to you and chat it up. Hey, Jay, what's the password to your computer? You can just say it. <laughs> but here we go with Paul Check, ladies and gentlemen. How you doing? Uncle Paul, how are you? Oh, man, busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. <laughs> Did you sleep good last night? Not bad. How about you? I slept good. I slept good. I, I'm starting to get my sleep dialed in pretty pretty well. Uh, have your kids been sleeping, uh, Mana and Zoe? Yeah, you know, they're usual for kids, but 
They've been doing pretty good. Secret is lots of exercise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So is that your new uh that that's your new office area there, huh? Yeah, yeah. I guess you guys haven't been here, huh? I know. We can't wait to come back. Love you to see this place. It's amazing, man. Yeah, I can't wait. But for all for all my listeners and viewers out here, this is uh this has been my teacher now for probably four years. I've been studying Paul Check's books, his podcasts, and he's really uh I think we found Paul. Mariah listened to your podcast with Aubrey Marcus and she said, uh. Hey, you should listen to this guy. So I, I listened to it and then I ended up buying your book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy. And I was like, Holy shit, like this I I like this stuff. Um, we ended up talking to you talking about it on a YouTube video and then one of your students connected us and then we got to come out sugar and I and our girls got to come out and uh, see the pad and and you gifted us with the HLC the holistic lifestyle coaching course number one and Mariah and I did that together awesome we did that together and I can't even say just how much it helped our relationship grow and it helped us really grow Especially, especially me being raised as a Jehovah's Witness and this, like to be a good person, you need to be religious or all these different philosophies. I really liked your course because it just, it just talked about the importance of, of organic foods and the importance of quality water and the importance of good rest. And, um, it's just helped us so much in so many ways, um, that I can't thank you enough. And I'm, I'm super pumped to be chatting with you, brother. Oh, I always love enjoying time with you guys you know you're special people and it was great to have you on my podcast and i look forward to doing that again when we can make it happen yeah definitely so what did you have uh your espresso this morning oh of course yeah first thing yeah that's what i normally do i come in and turn on the vaporizer the espresso machine and light up my incense and say good morning to all my plants and give them some love and do my prayers and connect to whatever beings of great spirit want to talk to me and get myself grounded and focused for the day. And, and then uh, once I do, do my prayers and all that, sometimes I have my espresso as fast as I can get it just because it's my morning specialty, you know? Get your morning charge up. So have you always done just the espresso straight black? Yeah, I've never really... Uh, I mean, I, there was times in my life when I drank drip coffee, but I don't like the effects it has on me. I find it way more drying. And, um, uh, you know, as I studied the science of coffee and espresso making, and, and, you know, I read a great big book written by Illy, the famous coffee maker, Europeans know Illy coffee quite well. And he has a very comprehensive, like a 200 plus page book on the science of coffee. And, the, you know, he goes deep into the physiology of it. So once I started really getting into the biochemistry of coffee and, and how it was best made and the pros and the cons, I realized from that study that espresso actually has a lot lower level of caffeine in it because it has only, you know, a normal espresso shot only is exposed to the water for 19 to 24 seconds. And it's the exposure to the water that determines how much caffeine is pulled out of the bean. So a, a typical shot of espresso only has 40 to 70 milligrams of caffeine, but a typical eight ounce cup of coffee, like a Starbucks eight ounce cup of coffee can have as much as 350 milligrams. So 
because the espresso is so rich and concentrated, and I like to put really high quality butter in mine, as you know, um, I get all the richness of it. And what Illy showed interestingly is there's over 40 amino acids in, in the coffee bean, many of which have a stimulatory and or positive effect on the body as long as you don't overdo it. And the high pressure of the espresso machine extracts the amino acids where drip coffee doesn't get the amino acids. So you just get a lot more, you know, what I call Brazilian tea with a lot of caffeine, but not a lot of the richness of the amino acids. So the other thing too, is you can make an Americano by just adding hot water to an espresso and it's just as rich or richer than a drip coffee, but then you get the benefits of the amino acids and you get the lower levels of caffeine, but you get the same um, duration. You know, a lot of people like to drink drip coffee because they want to drink more. It's more of a social thing. So they want to keep that thing going. So I tell people, if you want to minimize the caffeine and the drying effects of the coffee bean, or if you're someone with a fungal infection, then you want to minimize how much uh, coffee you drink because coffee is a very serious fungal feeder. You know, um, I tell people if, cause they always say to me, Oh, there's no sugar in coffee. Why would it be feeding funguses? I say, Oh, you don't think there's sugar in coffee. The next time you finish a coffee, when the cup's sitting on the table and it's, and it's all evaporated and just, you can see the stain in there, just smell the cup and it smells like syrup because there's so much concentrated sugar in the bean. So, you know, in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is there's a lot of benefits to it, but, but having been addicted to coffee a couple of times and finding it really hard to get off of and very, very uncomfortable. I mean, compared to, for example, vaporizing tobacco, I can vaporize as much tobacco as I want. And then if I go on a trip somewhere, I can just walk away from it, start my day with a cold shower, which stimulates, you know, cortisol and, and, and um, elevating hormones naturally. Um, I just feel a little tired for about a day. Then I feel perfectly normal, clear headed. But man, the first time I had to wean myself off a of coffee, cause it was just burning my adrenals out. And I was just feeling so dried out. My brain was getting foggy all the time. And you get to the point where you keep feeling that coffee low, but then you drink it and you get a headache and you get more dull. So it's a, you hit the tipping point where you're now trapped but it took me about a year of very careful uh, self-management and using things like Gyasa tea and other substitutes, chaga mushroom and various things. But it was just a nightmare. I just felt like I was walking around with an empty head for a year. Mm. And I ended up getting too tired traveling around on airplanes everywhere and got addicted again. And then I had to go through the whole thing again. So after two rounds like that, I just realized I have to identify what my threshold is. And I found for me, as long as I only drink one shot of espresso, which is one ounce and I put butter in it and I don't go any more than that, then I could literally not have a coffee the next day or an espresso. And, and I, I feel fine. But the minute that I cross that threshold of one espresso, in fact, I'm so sensitive to it. Sometimes I'll have friends over and I'll make them an espresso and I'll just take the teaspoon and lick the teaspoon after I give them the espresso. After I've stirred it for them, I'll say, okay, I'll take the crema off that teaspoon. 
And then just that little bit makes me feel buzzed and dried out and my lips will start cracking. Mm. Right now I'm doing a parasite cleanse. So I have a crack in my lip, but I'm pushing all sorts of stuff out of my body. But once my point is, I think everybody needs to realize our physiology is unique. And some of us have better capacity for detoxification, clearing, diet and lifestyle factors, et cetera. So, you know, you might be able to do twice as much as me and be fine, but everybody has to figure out what their threshold is or what seems like a benefit actually becomes not only a detriment to your physical, emotional and mental stability, but you just get further and further down the rabbit hole. And next thing you know, your life is miserable because you've been enjoying something that once gave you joy and, and support. Yeah. It's crazy how many people in, in this day and age are, uh, just addicted to caffeine and then complaining about their sleep and they're drinking caffeine past four or five o'clock. I'm going to, I'm going to spark up a bag right now with you just to uh, celebrate. You actually turned us onto the volcano, but I've, I've been searching around for some organic tobaccos, but I go into these tobacco stores and Hey, do you have any like pure organic tobacco? And they look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The closest you can get, well, there's a place called wholeleaf.com, if I remember right. It's a company out of Canada, and they will sell you. I mean, I, I bought a pound of really high-quality organic tobacco for like $24. And the stuff I'm buying at the local tobacco shop, which is not classed as organic, but I did research and found that this company called the Stockaby Corporation, which is what I was sharing with you guys when you were with me, they don't use any chemicals on their tobacco. And, you know, I'm sensitive enough to tell immediately. I, there, there's a, a background buzz whenever they've put herbicides, pesticides, or any of those chemicals that I can feel immediately. I can feel it also if I drink any coffee. That Coffee's one of the most dangerous things to drink if it's not organic. It's just loaded with pesticides. So you can go to wholeleaf.com. Then there's um, American Spirit, which is quite a potent tobacco, but it is actually certified organic. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's good to know. Yeah. I, uh, I listened to the podcast with you and Ryan Sprague and I've also done your healing herb course, which I got a lot of out, a lot of out of, Great. Um, but yeah, Ryan Sprague, he sent me some of his jelly sickle organic grown marijuana right here. So cheers, brother. Cheers, man. Oh, but I can't wait to try the, the, uh, tobacco. And some of the listeners are probably like, holy shit. What, what? He smokes tobacco tobacco but i heard you saying on the podcast how the tobacco is a little bit more of an upper for you and what kind of benefits do you get from tobacco just some simple ones well you know tobacco is a very misunderstood plant because you know 99 of the world population's orientation toward tobacco is commercially raised tobacco i.e cigarettes which is very very dangerous it's all commercially farmed it's loaded with chemicals and what a lot of people don't know is eight percent of a cigarette on average is sugar so you're actually mainlining white sugar and they do that to make it highly addictive. Um, but I've got two books in my library, one written by a medical doctor on the healing benefits of tobacco. And it's probably 350 pages. Yeah. I've got another one written um, by shaman on the healing benefits of tobacco. But when you're talking about particularly organically grown tobacco, that's not altered it has a lot of very interesting benefits one of the unique things about tobacco and they still to this day don't know how this happens 
is that nicotine stimulates the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system at the same time, which technically you're not supposed to be able to do. So what that means is that tobacco, interestingly, has a relaxing effect on you on the inside, but it sharpens your mind. So when you use tobacco, you know, vaporizing it, you're only getting a, a small fraction of the nicotine out of the plant because the vaporizer is not nearly hot enough. The, the volcano only goes to about 450 degrees. And when you use a pipe or smoke tobacco, you're getting between 800 and 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, which will liberate all the nicotine out of the plant. And Northern Shag, the one I use is the lowest uh, has the lowest nicotine content of any tobacco they sell. And it's a huge tobacco store with hundreds of tobaccos. So I find that much better. But so the point being nicotine actually has almost an identical effect on the brain as coffee does. It linearizes thinking. It activates the left brain. And then because it also has a parasympathetic effect, it has a calming effect on the body and it was always interesting because when I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, every time we had to go to the shooting range and shooting's very serious for an elite soldier, because if you can't shoot, you're useless. So they're put heavy emphasis on that. I'd see all these guys lighting up cigarettes and a lot of them are not guys that normally smoke, but they'd be lighting cigarettes up and smoking before we'd go to the firing range. Because oftentimes we're doing, you know, these intense courses with pop-up targets all the way to 400 meters and sometimes you've got like one second and it's, and it's a scored thing. It's, 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 it's a, almost like a, it's a competition amongst the soldiers to who to shoot, who can shoot best, but it's also a requirement that you maintain a certain level of shooting skill or, or you end up having to go into rehab, like, a, like there's something wrong with you. And so I used to think, why do these guys smoke all this tobacco? And I, it used to drive me nuts because I was such a health, you know, nut that I thought, why would they do this to themselves? But then later, when I started getting into, you know, experimenting with clean tobaccos, and I saw how it affected my mind, I could easily see, wow, I wish I would have been using tobacco at the shooting range, because it would help a lot. And um, so, you know, the other thing is like, I don't smoke marijuana during the workday because I can't focus. It puts me into dream world too much. And I'm already quite tapped into these other dimensions from all my medicine work and, and spiritual practices. So I can find myself just staring at my computer screen dreaming and an hour goes by and nothing's happened. When I paint, I love a good quality sativa like Ryan Sprague's sativa because it really flowers the creativity but if I'm trying to do a painting with geometrical patterns or any kind of real structure in it, I have to put tobacco in there because I need the left brain to give me the focus. So I find that that combination is extremely good, which I was turned on to years and years ago when I was traveling in Denmark and Sweden and, and in the Scandinavian region, which I'd done lots of work in. We have a lot of students there the guys there would always mix tobacco and hash. So they would have a little pipe. And I was amazed at how different of an experience it was when you mix the tobacco with the hash, because it did the same thing. It let you have your feet on your ground and your head in the clouds at the same time. And for a guy like me that does a lot of spiritual exploration for, for developing education courses for my own inner work, and just for getting guidance from my soul, 
I find it really good because I can download information from higher dimensions, but I can have a coherent stream of thought and I can write and take notes. But if I smoked hash, for example, without the tobacco, I would be so blown out that I'm almost like in a dream, but I'm not able to interact with the dream in a lucid format. Whereas with the tobacco, I can be in the dream, but I can actually lucidly dream where I can interact with the dream characters, change the nature of the dream or ask questions in the dream. So I, th I think that uh, there's a lot of benefits to tobacco. Um, and it also helps do things like lower blood pressure. It helps uh, decrease appetite for people that have uh, eating addictions and things like that. That's why a lot of models, for example, and movie stars smoke tobacco because it helps them keep their uh, their weight, their eating more in check. Um, so what what uh so do you do? But you grind it up about three fourths tobacco and then a, um, the rest marijuana. And then what do you cook it at? Well, actually, for me, it varies depending on what I'm doing. You know, I have, as you probably remember from being at my Heaven House office, I've got probably 100 different herbs, all organically sourced. I've got piles of flower essences. I've got essential oil tinctures, essential oils. So I generally go about 50% tobacco and 50% herbs. And then I use essential oils as modulators and flower essences as modulators. So if I want more focus, then I would use a flower essence like Cognus, which brings you into cognitive focus. But if I'm doing deep introspective work, I might use a flower essence called Owl, which is basically a shaman that channels the spirit of the owl into the essence. And it sounds wild, but it's very, very good flower essences. Um, these are animal essences. There's no killing of the animal. This shaman just taps into the animal spirit. And then he channels that into a bowl of water, which he then bottles. And I didn't realize that's how he was doing it. Cause my first concern when I saw these essences, which I was drawn to was, I don't want to participate in any essence that's killing the animal. Cause that's just, I don't want to add more death to life, you know, than I need to. But I read a book by him and he talked about his whole procedure, which was incredibly a lot like how I do things. So I thought, well, I know that works for sure, but I've got his essences here and they work phenomenally well. Point being, an essence like owl is to give you deeper vision and deeper perspective into things. So if I'm doing work like outlining a book or an article where I need a lot of depth perception so that I can put an outline together that really covers the key things, then I would add something like owl essence to it. Damn. So how I mix the herbs, the oils, and the tobaccos is very specific to exactly the task that I'm doing. And because it's a form of alchemy and I'm learning a lot as I go, about, you know, what this herb does or what that herb does, or, you know, what does this combination do? Or if this one has some positive effects, but some negative effects that I don't like, what herbs can I add to it to knock the negative effects out and cancel them out? So in other words, it's a form of alchemical exploration. And I like to always use my environment to keep learning. So I don't just get habituated into patterns because one of the things that, you know, you might've known through experimentation, if you smoke the same 
strain of marijuana repeatedly, your body will eventually start adapting to it. And you can even start getting negative results from it. But if you have five or six varieties and you, even though it's all marijuana, the difference in the chemistry is such that your brain does not adapt. Mm. So I find that having a variety of tobaccos and herbs and oils uh, allows me to continue to get the positive benefits without my body feeling overstimulated or my immune system getting overstimulated by any one genus of, of a uh, plant or oil. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Like I said, taking that healing herb course of yours, uh, helped out a lot, especially people that say, Oh, I smoke weed. I smoke weed and I just get anxiety and just all yeah. the pesticides in these days and, and the, the money making machine now. But I kind of want to, I kind of want to switch uh, topics and talk about a little bit because uh, sugar and I have a cold plunge and we've been cold. Plun we've been cold plunging for, I think probably about three years now. And I think we have the same exact cold plunge as you. What's oh, your, yeah? uh, your cold plunge routine? Well, typically for me, I go into the sauna. Uh, typically, I'll work out often just because I'm writing my new book right now, and I have been for about a year, so I'm just balls out writing all the time. And when I get a train of thought, I don't want to stop, which is hard because, you know, our hormonal system usually reaches peak cortisol levels somewhere around 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, depending on the person. And that's when you're going to be at your best workout performance because you have the most anti-inflammatory capacity, but you also have the most stimulation of the reticular activating system um, in the brainstem, which is the point place that gives you alertness. So when you have high levels of cortisol and maximum alertness, then of course you have the capacity for the greatest work potential. And then as the cortisol levels drop down, your, your body uh, doesn't respond quite as favorably. It'd be like if I woke you up in the middle of the night and said, let's go do some heavy deadlifts, your body would just say, screw off. I'm not interested. So because of the shift in my schedule and what I need to do to put the priority on my writing, now I've been getting into the gym a lot at, at night. So I don't often get there till 4.35, sometimes even six o'clock, which I really don't like, but it's a, it's just an ad adaptation I have to make. So then what I'll do is I'll turn the sauna on before I start the gym. So it's nice and hot. I'll run out of the gym, jump in the sauna, get a good solid sweat. And that's the other thing. If you use tobacco a lot or herbs or pot, you need to sweat a lot or it'll definitely clog your body up and lead to toxicity issues. If you can smell your armpits, it means you need to detoxify and infrared and, and, and saunas in general are, are very good. Even hot baths where you get a good solid sweat with Epsom salts will help pull stuff out of you. So anyhow, I jump in the sauna and then once I finish the sauna, I go get in the cold plunge and then I just lay in the cold plunge. I just ask my soul to let me know when my physiology is balanced so that you know, exercise is yang, hot saunas are yang, tobacco's yang hot airs, you know, breathing hot air. It's all masculine energy that dries you out. So the cold energy is very feminine and very nurturing and it tightens the body up and it strengthens the body. So I'll just lay in the cold plunge. The first thing I do is I get in and I go face down and put my whole body under the water and stay as long as I can hold my breath. Then I come up, take a second breath. I'll recharge. <laughs> And then I'll go down for another long, as long as I can stay. 
and I stay until my head's so frozen that the pain of it's just, you know, more than I want to take. And then I'll just come up, turn around and relax in it. And, and it will be anywhere between five to eight minutes typically. And I'm Damn, running it awesome. around uh, 47 degrees. That's awesome. And so you're usually just hitting it in the nighttime and then uh, do you end on the cold or do you end on the hot? No, I always end on cold. It's not a good idea to end on hot because it leaves your pores open. So your body's much more permeable to everything. So for example, if there's someone in the environment, maybe in the house, it's got a cold or any kind of a, a bug. When you're hot like that, your whole field and cells are wide open. So you're not closed. So unless a person's sick and there's a reason they should not use cold water because their body's too feeble to generate the heat and to, to protect themselves against the cold, you should always finish with cold and go until your skin feels numb. If you can get water cold enough to do that. Once you get to the numbing point, then you know, you're, your tissues are closed and you're back to yin and you have a nice healthy barrier. Um, that's an important tip. Damn. That's a, that's a really good tip. Yeah. Because even at the UFC PI, they have you uh, start with the cold three minutes, hot three minutes, cold three minutes, hot three minutes, and then end on the cold three minutes. So yeah, that's, that's freaking great advice. So there's this, there's, there's a big new craze going on about the like the raw food diet. And I was supposed to have the carnivore MD on the podcast last week, but something got mixed up. So I'm going to have him on in the future. But I'm, I'm curious to ask him because you, especially in your program, you say our bodies and our and everything is as different on the inside as they are the outside. Yes. So, and especially for explosive athletes like us, sometimes we have to, we have two practices a day where we're exploding and using lots of, lots of just explosive mic, uh, muscles and burning a lot of glycogen. So what, what's your kind of take on that raw food, raw meat and, um, fruit diet? Well, I think there's a few things that are very important. I think everybody would do best to eat as much raw food as they can, but there's a threshold for each person, you know, raw food. If you're eating, vegetables, there's a lot of fiber and, and not everybody has the same capacity to break fibrous foods down. This is why people that are more genetically oriented towards a higher fat, higher protein diet, which in my program, you know, is more the, what I call the polar type diet because the, around the equator, it's warmer. So I call the polar type diet, which is usually around 60% flesh foods, 40% uh, plant foods. Um, those people don't generally have the enzymatic profile to break a lot of plant foods down. They're the ones that have the most trouble if they go on a vegetarian or vegan type diet because they don't have the enzyme profile or the genetics and often even the gut length. Um, Byron Robinson, MD, uh, a long time ago did, uh, I think he dissected like 650 people with the question, does the intestinal tract adapt based on diet and environment? And he found something quite remarkable, and it's the only place I've ever found this information. He showed very interestingly 
that when he dissected people that came from regions in the world like India, where there wasn't a lot of meat available, or for example, inland uh, Aboriginal Australia, ab inland Aboriginals in Australia are a long ways from the ocean. So their diet's about 90% plant foods and only about 10% flesh foods, most of which are things like uh, widgety grubs, big insects, lizards, stuff that they can get in the desert. But the coastal Aboriginals eat about 75% fish and animal foods or flesh foods and only 25% plant foods, but both of them are very healthy. So when Byron Robinson dissected people from regions which were predominantly plant-based, he found that their intestinal tracts, mouth to anus, could be 42 feet long. When he dissected people like Eskimos and people that lived in high meat availability regions where they had no reason to live only on plants because there was a lot of meat available, he found people with intestinal tracts, mouth to anus, as short as 21 feet. Damn. So what he showed is that over time, the large, the small intestine especially had increased its length to increase its surface area to increase transit time and absorbability so that it had more time to extract protein out of fibrous plants. So those of us that have genetics where our parents come from areas where the winter, where there's a winter that freezes the ground, remember plants don't grow in ice, are genetically designed to need more saturated fats, more amino acids that are more bioavailable from animal sources and don't do well on plant foods uh, above and beyond the, the ratio that our body can handle. And so you see, for example, a lot of gas and bloating in people that are really more designed for flesh foods. And of course, I've rehabbed tons of vegans and vegetarians that came to me and sat there and <laughs> spouted about all the benefits of their vegan and vegetarian diet. And I said, then why are you paying me $750 an hour? Because your health is the shits. Just fucked and, up. Yeah. You know, so then they realize, oh my God, you know, maybe I need to reevaluate this. So I give them these explanations and show them the research. And then they, I say, look, you need to learn to listen to your body because being part of an ism is, is basically letting go of your own capacity for rational thought and having a relationship with yourself. Now you're just believing an idea and ideas get people killed every day, <laughs> as we can see right now uh, in the world. So, you know, to me, I don't believe there's any such thing as the right diet or even the right combination. Natives cooked fibrous foods because they could digest them. Hawaiians, if you study all over the world, the use of cooking is commonly used for fibrous plant foods um, because it makes the foods more bioavailable. And a lot of really sick people don't do well at all on raw foods. They, they basically cannot digest them and they feel worse. So with people like that, if I want to give them raw foods, I juice them so that they're bioavailable. But I also go to broths, bone broths, stews, and soups, because then you can mix the vegetables and the meat and you can extract bioavailable fats, proteins, and nutrition that's easy to use. In fact, I've had a number of women with endometriosis that were vegetarians and they could not heal until I actually got them to start using broths, um, gelatin. Um, a lot of people, for example, uh, athletes especially have problems with cartilage 
and joint problems and and they're eating these vegetarian diets so as soon as i get them on things like shark cartilage and having them stew bones like cook the whole chicken in a slow cooker and eat the cartilage off the bones eat as much of the bone as you can then they start noticing their their joints start to heal because you have to have the resources in your diet and our body will not try to make new molecules when it doesn't have to so if you eat bone there's good tests that was done even by people like Francis Marion Pottinger. You can find them at the Weston A. Price Foundation or the Price Pottinger Foundation in their library. And they did this with glandulars, taking the glands of an animal. Francis Marion Pottinger did this in the late 40s with the adrenal glands. And what he did is he attached radio markers, radioactive markers, fed them to animals and even people so they can use x-ray to track where those molecules go. And they showed every single time that if you eat kidney, the molecules end up in your own kidneys. If you eat liver, it goes to your liver. If you eat adrenals, it goes to your adrenals. And the Egyptians talked about this 2000 years ago. They, for example, said, if you eat a food that looks like the human brain, it will nourish the human brain. If you eat something that looks like the alveoli of the lungs, it'll nourish the lungs. And only a few years ago, I actually saw a scientific paper that had identified this correlation between the structure of a vegetable or a fruit and where it would go in your body. And they found there was a pretty good correlation to that. So the point I'm making is if someone's adrenals are in poor health or their cartilage is in poor health or their bones are in poor health, you're not going to get that out of plant foods because you're now not listening to your body. You're listening to a dogma. So I'm always testing people and I'm always, as you know, from my book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy, you can do metabolic type testing, you can do challenge tests, you can do a, a whole day of eating as a vegetarian and monitor how you feel. And there's a whole list of things I give people look and you can eat nothing but meat and see how you feel and you can eat nothing but fat, a temp typical fat test I do. If people can eat peanut butter, because most people like it, I say, try living off peanut butter all day and water. And some people will say, oh my God, I've never felt so better. My mind was clear, dot, dot, dot. Well, what do you find? They were eating low fat diets. So their body's starving for fat. If someone's eating too much meat, that can poison your body, back the system up, lead to joint health, make you too acidic, set you up for parasite and fungal infections. So those people need to eat more plants. If someone's eating too much plants and they're not getting enough saturated fats and flesh, then they have often within a few years, they'll have hormonal regulation problems and they start going into severe adrenal fatigue and then they become hypothyroid because the body will, the thyroid will regulate down to protect the adrenal glands. Cause the, you know, there's, there's three primary hormones in the human body that are necessary for survival. All the other hormones just add quality to life. Those three primary hormones are insulin, adrenaline, and cortisol. So anything that messes with your insulin levels, your adrenaline levels, and your cortisol levels will cause serious problems, but your body will just start eating your own muscle tissue to manufacture adrenaline and cortisol and even insulin. So this is why you see these people looking so gaunt and skinny because they're actually in a state of gluconeogenesis. So here they are telling me they're trying to protect animals, but I say, yes, but you're abusing the only animal that can really make changes in the world. Bears don't vote. Cows don't uh, get involved in unveiling truths. Human beings can do that. But if you're 
abusing the animal that you are, then you're, you're going against your own philosophy. So for me, it's not a right or wrong. It's not should or shouldn't. It's one, the quality has to be there. It has to be clean, organically raised foods, or you're putting money into the destruction of the soil and the environment anyhow. And from there, it's proportion and proportion can change. For example, if I do heavy deadlifts, I need a lot of meat. But if I'm on a day off, sometimes I'll take two days off because I'm 60 years old now. So my body's not recovering as fast as it did when I was younger. But when I'm not lifting weights, I can eat as a vegetarian and feel fine. I don't, I, I, I might need just small amounts of meat or fish or none, and I feel great. So the difference is, is when you're doing hard athletic training and you're getting a lot of micro trauma to muscles and tendons, your body has to have readily available proteins in a format that your genetics is designed to absorb and utilize. So the point I'm making is physical stress, emotional stress, mental stress, toxicity, and environmental stress, and, and, and psychological stress in general, all changes the ratio of the plant and animal foods and the variety that you need, because each of them carries molecules that are specific to key needs and key hormonal pathways in the body. And all a person has to do is learn to pay attention. That's really your body will tell you exactly what you need if you just get all the ideas out of your head yeah that's, that's one thing that that your program helped us a lot with too we 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 uh googled organic farm near me so now that's where we get our veggies and and coming over to your house and seeing how penny cooks we cook similar almost every night um and just when you eat something not giving you gas or gas right away or burpee or just wanting to take a shit right away or just feeling like crap right away just tapping into asking yourself hey do i feel good after this and you can really tell when that good organic food uh digests and that's one thing not even it's just helped us in so many different ways it's helped our relationship it's helped like our energy it's helped our sex life it's helped everything in so many ways just being more conscious of what we eat and caring about where it came from but the next topic I kind of wanted to get into is a little bit is in your opinion, is the classic, is the classic marriage contract? Is it a little bit outdated to you? Because it's like, I know I'm a good person. I know my, my dad and I, I know all, a lot of guys that are very good people, but they crave other pussy. And I know it's not because they're bad people. They're just horned up pit bulls like us. Yeah. You know, I think. You know, there's a great book. I'm sure you're, I would imagine you're familiar. Are you familiar with the book Sex at Dawn? I haven't read it. I'm familiar with it. It's a very, very good book. Um, I think that's an important book for anybody to read. You know, we're in a culture that is Christian based. So the idea of monogamy has been programmed into us culturally. So what happens is your instincts to to procreate, a man is designed to spread his seed. That's what men's biological imperative is. A woman's biological imperative is to grow new life from that seed. But a woman is oriented towards having the safety and security of knowing that her partner is going to be there to support her through the process of pregnancy and raising children, which is a very, very tough <laughs> amount of work for a woman, period. So women are energetically and biologically 
oriented towards having a man close to them that they can rely upon. But in tribals, many tribal societies did not practice monogamy because they found quite interestingly that because men's sex urges are so high that women kept getting pregnant very quickly. And they found over time that if a woman got pregnant more often than once every three years, the increase in the death rate amongst women due to illness and complications with pregnancy and after pregnancy and between children went through the roof. So they found that having open relationships and some tribes made it a rule that you're not allowed to get a woman pregnant for three years after she has a baby because it decreases the stability of the tribe. So then what would happen is men could have sex with any of the women that were not in that three-year phase. And the Aboriginal culture has, has a very interesting philosophy where they have all the young men have sex with all the married women until the head woman, because in their culture is matriarchal. So what we think of as a chief is almost always a woman in Aboriginal tribes. And once the head chief woman gets enough consensus from the married women that this man knows how to love and care for a woman, then they allow him to choose a wife. And this often goes on for 37 to 40 years. So they, they can ha start having sex as soon as they're old enough. And they even have often a, a, a lean to or a, a special place in the middle of the village where anybody can go to have sex. And they train the, the, the kids to spy on adults having sex. And then at night around the campfire, the kids will come emulate whoever they saw having sex. And the rest of the tribe has to guess who it was that the kids <laughs> caught. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, you can read about this in an amazing book called Voices of the First Day by Robert Lawler. It's a mind-blowing piece of work. So what you see in the Aboriginal cultures, they're actually using all the married women who are very educated and experienced sexually to train young men how to effectively pleasure a woman. And the women teach him how to be a husband. And he cannot become married until he has enough sexual experience and enough wisdom as to what it means to be a husband to get married. So you see a very, very different idea than the Christian monogamy till death do you part culture, which goes against our biology. Now, so what happens is men get pitted up with an ideology against their biological imperative, and that leads to a lot of tension and a lot of distress. But the reality of it is, is that if you're not true to yourself, then you set yourself up for all sorts of problems. But where our culture really fails is men are often too immature to be honest with their partner. And they go into a marriage based on a Christian agreement, but Inside of themselves, they're questioning, can I really do this? Or they're just so love drunk and naive that they think they can do it. Next thing you know, well, if you look at the statistics today, the average marriage only lasts 2.5 years and the average American or, or person based on the Kinsey report and others has three marriages in their lifetime. So the idea of monogamy is not working out very well at all. It, on the surface, people pretend they're monogamous, but in actual fact, very, very few people are. In fact, something like 52% of people are, 
of adults are having extramarital affairs at any given time. So then what you see is you're now meeting the devil. You're now sinning. So you've got to atone for that. You got to keep secrets. You could destroy your, your life because if your wife's uh, on the agreement that you signed up for and she's carrying the weight of your children and you're screwing some other woman, the degree that she loves you can become the degree that she hates you and rejects you. And we've seen nothing but a long string of movie stars and famous athletes go down that road. So the point I'm making is, you know, my first marriage of 17 years taught me that I could not be monogamous. It was not natural to me. So from then on, I said to any woman, I, I am not monogamous. So as long as you are in agreement with those terms, I'll always be honest with you and, I, and, and you can do what you want. But as long as we agree to the relationship, it's fine. But countless is the number of elite athletes and movie stars and business moguls and millionaires and billionaires that have come in with health problems. I track right back to the deceit. Damn. It just kind of, he, he froze there for a second. Different women that they're in relationships around the world. And they're trying to keep all that from their wife who they married as a Christian while they've got kids. And so they don't realize that their chronic back pain, digestive troubles, uh, anxiety, and depression is the compensatory neurosis that they have to have in order to dissipate the stress that they're concealing from everybody except the guys in the locker room, which are largely doing the same thing. And so it all boils down to just being really clear about who you are and being very honest in your relationships, or you just become the village idiot who yeah. has a wife and kids who based on an agreement trusted you would be there, but now they're confused and kids don't know how, how to process that. They don't know what that means. So it leads to a lot of psychological stress. It leads to a lot of broken families and it's unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Good. Good to hear that answer. Like I've kind of lucked out. I've been dating Mariah now for over 11 years and we haven't always kind of been in the relationship we were, but we were able to really start to be truly honest once she figured out, like, I really, really love her and I'm there for her and I care for her. And I truly, she's truly my, my best friend. So we were able to open up and kind of talk about our different needs and stuff. But for someone getting fresh into a relationship, you would, you would recommend they say, Hey, I'm not looking to be monogamous right off the bat. I would say whatever is true for you. I would just tell women, you know, after my first marriage ended, I was single for probably almost two years. And I had a lot of sex with a lot of beautiful women, fortunately. Um, <laughs> but I would, I would tell them right up front, I cannot be monogamous. I didn't work. I've tried it for 17 years and it's not natural to me. But that doesn't mean I'm running around looking to get laid all the time. It just, you know, I'm a professional speaker. I'm well known. I travel the world and women offer themselves to me. And some of them are intelligent and beautiful. And I have friendships with them. And I don't want to put a limit on what I can do to share deep connection with someone who I have genuine love and interest in. But it doesn't mean I'm going to leave you or that I love you less. Mm -hmm. 
And so if, and some of them said, I can't do that. I said, great, well then let's just be friends and, and, and keep it safe at that level. And those that agreed, agreed and, and all the better. In fact, I, I, in the beginning, I, I had a hard time with it because every time I was having sex with more than one woman, all my Christian programming started rising up and I had to deal with all this inner turmoil from my childhood programming. So what I did is I had to figure out a way to heal that. So one of my buddies is at that time was an elite athlete, very good looking guy. And so I would offer these girls if they wanted to have sex with two guys. Invite my buddy over and we would share these girls and we would give them massages and just, you know, give them orgasms till they just turned inside out and just Damn. were dead, you know? That's great. And so it taught me how to let go and it taught me how to share and get rid of the territorial um, alpha male type programming. And, and when I saw the joy that we were able to give women and, and just how much, beauty there was and not trying to always make somebody an object of your control. I found that it helped me grow. Um, and when I met Penny, we both just agreed right from the beginning that we would uh, allow each other the freedom we needed. And our, our, basically our contract with each other is as long as we love each other enough to stay connected and work through life's challenges together, then we'll stay married. But the day that we realize that we're just not compatible, we're not going to drag each other through it. So uh, we're about to have our 25th anniversary. And, and you know, I, I've never been loved so fully by a human being in my life. And, you know, I have two wives. So Penny's agreement from the beginning was you can have seven wives as you want, as long as they don't talk too much, they cook, they clean, and they contribute to the bottom line. Um yeah, Penny seems just like such a powerful woman. I was so happy like Mariah got to meet her and just an awesome lady. So with Aunt, when you guys ended up bringing kind of Angie a part of the the tribe, how did you navigate like okay, where are we going to sleep and then who's going to sleep with who and just how did you navigate that? That had to been crazy. Well, it was easy really. Um what I learned from studying the Aboriginal culture is that they wouldn't allow any of the young men to sleep with any of the married women for more than three days because they said it caused a strong bonding effect that started getting in the way of the committed marriage that the woman had. So knowing that, what I did is I set up a system with the girls where I sleep with Penny for two days and then I sleep with Angie for two days because I've actually experienced me rebonding to Penny so deeply that I was often unconsciously disconnecting from Angie, which she could feel and, and didn't like, or if I bonded too much to Angie, Penny didn't really complain, but I could feel myself um, so, shall we say, oriented toward Angie that it was easy to not share equal love and attention with Penny. So using the two-day cycle, it makes it easier that you don't fall deeper and deeper into a monogamous pair bonding type experience. If that's what you want, it's okay. Um, but that, so from the beginning, that's how I did it. And um, I've always maintained that because I studied the Aboriginal, I studied sexual interactions and relationships around the world 
because I really wanted to educate myself so I knew how much of my inner challenges are just brainwashing from a religion versus the truth mm-hmm. and, and how do other people live and deal with these issues culturally around the world. And the more I studied, the more I realized that I was really dealing more with the effects of Christian programming than I was dealing with, shall we say, the truth. Mm-hmm. So it all boils down, Tim, to being very honest with yourself and with your partner. If you're honest with yourself about your needs and you meet them at the expense of your partner, then you are a fool and it'll ruin your life and the lives of other people, such as kids and family, and it'll confuse people. And it almost always leaves you looking like a, a, a dirt bag. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of men lack spiritual growth is being honest in relationships most of them are honest with their buddies and you hear everything in the locker room and it's who fucked who. And, you know, we all are happy when some guy gets to shag three girls or something, but we don't often think about the damage that's doing to the people because it's coming at the expense of honesty and you can't have an authentic relationship without honesty. And most people are too insecure. They think, Oh, I'll never be able to live that way. Cause who's going to do that with me. But when you get right down to it and you, basically harmonize yourself with the belief that I can live true to myself and there must be others willing to live true to myself. I found I had no problem at all in any country finding women that were absolutely oriented toward that. And usually you find it's mostly the women around late thirties, usually early forties, because they've had to live through enough of their own experiences to have time to become honest with themselves sexually and in relationships So if you start dating some hot 22 year old who's raised in a Christian family and you try that, it'll, it'll, it'll be a, you know, it'll be the best looking nightmare you ever had. (laughs) That's it. And the thing is, it just, with that, those kind of conversations, it does just take some balls to be able to communicate and say, Hey, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm thinking. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to do, but every time we've talked about it and then just. We've always grown from it. We, yeah, it's not been easy all the time, these conversations, but we navigate through those feelings and it's just, it's made our relationship like way stronger than most people that I see. There's a couple of things I can throw in to help. You know, what I tell most men is, is explore it with your wife or your partner, not from the perspective of this is something that has to happen or I'm going to leave you. But, you know, if I said, Tim, what are you feeling right now? And you you said, Paul, well, I'm feeling uh, excited because we're having a great talk together. And then I said, well, that's bullshit. Well, I would be denying your own feelings. And only a fool would deny the wants, feelings and needs of their partner. So what I think is most important is to really explore what are your wants, feelings and needs, both not only sexually, but for our relationship and what is the highest principle or value that our relationships built on? Is it because we're building a dream together? And that's what's important. See, for me and Penny, building the Institute was our primary primary focus and our relationship facilitated that. So anything that got in the way of our dream was antagonistic, whether it included sex or not. So once you know what you're your relationships really about that's bigger than either of you as an individual, then you can say, okay, now 
what are your individual wants, feelings, or needs around sexual intimacy? And most people's fear is that they're going to lose their partner. So one of the things I suggest is, and I've had many of my clients do this and find it was really quite an amazing experience. Sometimes it made them realize they really did love each other and didn't need someone else. And other times it made them realize here's something that we can do together. So what I suggest is find somebody that you both feel attracted to and invite them and say, would you like to come have some sexual play with us? And so then maybe you have a friend that's real good looking and your, and your partner says, oh yeah, I, I wouldn't mind exploring with him. And so you make that agreement and you get to share him pleasuring her or do it together. Or it might be that the next time it's a, a girl that you bring. So, you, you know, it really takes you into this experience where you meet a lot of your fears and you but you do it together. So you're in this journey of exploration together. And the agreement is, is that we are being honest about fulfilling our needs and we're willing to explore the reality because the real truth is anyone could fall in love with somebody else and the relationship dynamic can change instantly. Love has no rules. It's very volatile. So once you start engaging sexual intimacy, you could think that you're totally in love with your woman, that you're totally safe, but you can have sex with someone two or three or four times and find your whole mind and your whole being is completely absorbed with this person. And you now realize you want to be with that person and that can cause a shift. And I've seen it happen many times. So there is a level of mature exploration, but there's also an adult level of responsibility but the thing that's the most important is having an overarching dream. You know, for example, if, if you sat down with your partner and said, what is it that we're really here to contribute to the world together? What are we, what's bigger than us? For me, it's the Czech Institute and doing my best to help people live a healthy life and learn to use their minds effectively and be mutually supportive to the growth and development of, of the world and the protection of nature. So Penny and I are oriented toward that dream. If sex gets in the way in that, then it's actually an abortion of my own commitment to my life path. So if you don't have a North star that your compass points to, then the sex can throw you all over the map. And you can wake up 10 years later and realize you haven't done damn, a damn thing. You're, you're now just a 30-year-old, 20-year-old, or a 40-year-old, 30-year-old, or a 40-year-old, 20-year-old living the life of a teenager who's still trying to figure out what life's all about. But if you get clear on, on why you're together and what it is that, that your wants, feelings, and needs are, and what the rules of engagement are, and you make that your marriage vow, then you will find that you can have tremendous experiences together. Or even like, I remember the first time I shared my buddy with my first wife when we were still married, because we were both together since we were 16, and mm. we just needed different things, and monogamy was killing us both. And she'd always had the hots for him. So it just happened one day we showed up late at night from a, a seminar tour. He used to be an assistant to me when I taught seminars. So I whispered in her ear, I said, Hey, Terry's here. Do you want to have sex with him? 
She <laughs> looked at me and she said, you'd let me do that. I said, I know you've been in love with him for years. So yeah. So I let him sleep with her and I slept on the couch and they shagged all night and everybody was happy as a clam in the morning. And she was just shocked that I would let her do that. Mm. And so it really caused a bonding effect. It was like, wow, you love me enough to, to let me experience that. You know, so now she didn't get married to him or run off with him or anything, but she knew that if she and she did this, she, you know, she wanted to have sex with a woman. And so she didn't know how to organize that. Well, I'm in contact with a lot of women and I happen to know a beautiful woman that liked to go both ways. I hooked them up and she got to experience that too. So it was a great celebration. And it was like, wow, somebody's really getting to live. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you start living beliefs and ideas, because somebody else put them in your head and you're trying to make mommy and daddy and, and, a, and a God, some illusory God in the sky that you think's watching you, then you're forgetting about the fact that if God is God, then everything is God and burning God, God burning someone in hell is God burning itself in hell, which makes for a very unintelligent God. It's time for a software upgrade. So I've always pioneered things. I, I, I don't just listen to other people's ideas. I have to be true to myself or I don't know who I am. And then I'm really <laughs> a, a, a problem. Now I become uh, average. Yeah, that's another thing I've learned from you is just explore for yourself, do the research for yourself, and just learn your own outlooks. After been being kind of brainwashed by Jehovah's Witnesses my whole life and then realizing like, holy smokes, this shit isn't the right shit. So I've just been, um, yeah, researching stuff for myself. But that that was like so perfectly put and definitely take those. Uh, that'll help a lot of people, I think. But one thing I, uh, I was watching on the Gaia gaia.com do you go on there yeah i love it yeah i go there i love i spend hours and hours there's great stuff there i was i I was watching the uh the ramdas documentary and he said he said um he said enlightenment is the ego's biggest disappointment um enlightenment is the ego's biggest disappointment so I'm, i'm wondering can you be enlightened and be a highly competitive athlete or do you need your ego Well, without your ego, you have no sense of self. So to, to, you know, for example, if you do real deep plant medicine ceremonies and you don't have a strong ego, it'll be a rough, rough experience. You'll, you'll have a very profound death experience because plant medicines disable the default mode network, which is the structures of the brain that create the sense of self or the ego. So once you start using plant medicines, it actually disables that filtration system and it lets all the information trapped in your personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, which is the record of everything that's ever happened on this planet or even in the universe start flowing up into consciousness. But the first thing that comes up is all the stuff you've repressed, withheld, all the lies that you tell and all the shit you've buried in the trunk to try to navigate somebody else's ideas of who you should be and how you should live. So the point being is the deeper you go into yourself, paradoxically, the more you have to have a real well-established sense of self or plant medicines and spiritual development will actually dissolve you to the point that you just become like a vegetable growing in the garden. So what Ram Dass is saying 
is, is what a lot of people don't understand is that the further you go into spiritual development, by definition, spirituality is connecting to a progressively larger whole. So when Tim realizes he's not just Tim, he's also his environment. He's not just Tim. He's his parents' ideas. He's his friends' ideas. He's his teachers' ideas. And he's his students' ideas. Then Tim's sense of who he is starts to grow. Then eventually Tim realizes he couldn't be who he is without the entire of nature on this planet. So now Tim realizes he's a unique expression of the whole earth, but nothing on earth could be here without the sun. So Tim realizes, oh my God, I can't just be the earth. I have to be the sun too. But then you realize, well, the sun can't be here without the Milky Way, and the Milky Way can't be here without the whole universe. So what you find out is this thing called the self, which the ego is the conscious center of, is actually a product of the entire universe dreaming itself into existence. So the point is, is that the deeper you go into legitimate spiritual practices, the more and more the ego gets put in the back seat because you realize there's something inside of you that's wiser and always knows the answers. Some people call it their conscience, but really the soul is the consciousness within the whole construct of a human being. And so the more oriented you are to letting your soul guide your life or the whole of you, not just your ego, but your unconscious, your instincts, your deeper feelings and your deeper intuitions, then the more the ego ends up getting put in the back seat. So the ego may want to have all this sex with people and may even want to have sex with people that are married and they know they're going to get in trouble. But the soul says, do you really want to create harm while you're trying to make love? Because those two cancel each other out and it's not growth for anybody. In fact, all you're doing now is participating in creating an environment that ultimately you don't want to live in and you certainly wouldn't want your kids to live that way. So you see, as you become more soul oriented, the ego has always got a balancing force it has to deal with. If the ego is addicted to coffee, cookies, sex, money, drugs, or exercise, and there's no counterbalancing consciousness, then you just take yourself down the rabbit hole till you hit rock bottom and either you realize you've been bullshitting yourself or you've got to go to serious counseling to get help. But it, if you're listening to your soul, your soul will say, that's enough of that meat. And no, you shouldn't have sex with that person because they're not being honest with their partner. And if their partner finds out, you might end up dead or something bad. Mm -hmm. So you see... The deeper you go into spiritual practices, the deeper you go into the truth of God. And if God is anything, God is consciousness. And the soul is the consciousness within the individual expression of the divine. Tim Welsh is an individual expression of the divine. It's God being the one and only Tim Welsh. There never has been one of you. There never will be another one of you. Nothing spirit creates is a copy. It's all novel. Yes, you're a human being. but your unique fingerprints, your unique voice, your unique mannerisms, and your way of relating, nobody else has or ever will have again. So when you realize that you're a novel expression of the divine, to the, true, to the degree that you're true to your soul, which is God within, the more at ease you feel. Uh, and the more, when you live with, from your centered, then your life is not full of these polarized fields of shouldn't, shouldn't, and fear all the time, 
because you're you're capable of walking that tightrope between too much and too little of anything. Yeah, but the e- the ego falls into too much, particularly if it is something that gives it a sense of self-approval, aggrandizement. Look at me because most of us come from childhoods where we didn't get enough love and support. So the ego tries to compensate for that by doing things that get it attention and, and whether it's good or bad, I mean, sports is full of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the, in a nutshell, what Ram Dass is saying is the deeper you go into spiritual development, the more the ego and its control dramas are dissolved and put in the back seat. So the ego, which is your sense of self, inherently resist that because it's a death experience for the ego but the ego is really largely made of other people's ideas not our own it was programmed into us before we had an intellectual rational mind that could discern what idea from mom dad or church was really healthy we just got programmed so the ego is largely based on a programmed identity And the soul is not a programmed identity. It's an authentic expression of the creativity of the divine, but it's also inherently moral because it realizes everybody else is God too. So the beauty of it is you never lose your ego, but you also recognize the boundary of the ego. And when the ego is actually helping you have an authentic sense of I-ness, because without that, why bother taking care of yourself? Why bother doing anything well? You know, you just turn into a pumpkin. So there's always got to be a balance of the self as the great whole and the ego as the individual. But because the ego operates on programmed ideas, not novel creativity, you're always acting in the past from the ego because everything the ego is based on is something that it experienced in the past, but the soul lives in the eternal now. So when you connect to your soul, you can hear the voice of the soul and you can listen to the voice of the ego. Then you can use your discerning faculty to say, okay, my soul says, this is the best. My ego says to do this. If I go this way, everyone's going to think I'm too weird. It's a little too aggressive for my capacity to, to, you know, deal with people right now. If I go this way, I'm going to I'm going to be over consuming or falling into an old habit. So then you, you have to use your adult faculty to say, how do I walk the middle so that I keep a healthy ego, but keep an honest connection with my soul? Because if you go too far in any one direction, you can, you know, the only way to go that's safe is right into your soul. The problem is the soul is so brave and so fearless because it knows that it can't die and it knows what you're here to do it'll guide you into radical things. It'll, you know, I mean, the list is long. Your soul can tell you, shut down your business and go plant trees for Greenpeace or go start a church or, you know, things that are radical. I mean, when I'm lifting stones, as you know, I let my soul guide me and my soul will tell me to pick up rocks that are need to be stacked at chest height that weighed 250 or 300 pounds. I'm like, I can't lift that. And my soul says, what do you mean you can't lift that? And I'm like, that's too heavy. I'll kill myself. I don't want to get hurt. My soul says, well, then be creative. Who says you have to lift it? How about if you stack some rocks up and make a set of stairs and you roll it up the stairs? And I go, ah, I can do that. So you see, what I find is the soul is always teaching you how to use novel creativity 
to grow yourself and express yourself, but the ego immediately thinks that the soul is saying to lift it. The soul is saying, get it up there somehow and be creative. And that's where I think we get lost in the ego. Yeah, damn. That, that's put r really good. I, uh, I feel like on all these subjects, we could talk about all of them all day on each subject. Um, but your answers are good. The last one, I, I, I'm hoping I, our cameras don't die soon, but if they do, then that sucks. But the last one Ram Dass said, he said, when you're suffering, it's a gift because it shows you what your mind's clinging to. I thought that, that was a super powerful one, and it reminds me of the book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Yeah. And I thought that one was really good. I thought you'd like that one too. Yeah. You know, the, the thing is, is that pain is, is what quickens consciousness and, and the ego loves to think that it can control its environment. So the ego does not like change. It likes repeatability and it likes to know that whatever's going to happen tomorrow, it can control. So inevitably we cannot control life. Buddha said the only true universal law is impermanence, meaning you never know what's going to happen in life. That's because it's a mystery. So the ego tries to take the mystery out of the mystery and make it into, uh, you know, something you can hit replay on to make you feel safe and secure. But spiritual development and life are not like that. So whenever we are living in ways that are incongruent, with the truth of the environment and the truth of our moment in our times, then we create pain for ourselves. Like if you're not truthful with your partner that you're having sex with someone else, you might think you're controlling your environment, but the truth of the times is your needs are changing and you're not being honest in relationship or even checking to see if her needs are changing. You're just making an assumption. So inevitably, whenever we're out of truth, with our soul and with the changes in the environment, because we're listening to our ego, we attract pain to ourselves. Because look, if, if I say here, Tim, here's a round hole in the wall, put a peg in and you keep trying to drive a square peg into it. Well, the environment's changed. Yesterday, I had a square hole that you could put a square peg in, but today I wanted to see if you were paying attention. So now you've got a round hole, but if you keep using that square peg, you're going to destroy the peg and the hole. And there's the pain teacher coming to get you. So you got to say, okay, you know, look, look what the lockdowns did to people. It either wiped them out or it made them say it's time to be creative and figure out how to live well within the structure of the matrix. So you saw suicide rates go up, anxiety, drug addiction, food addiction went through the roof because people found that easier than being creative and reinventing themselves. So that's really the, 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 the drama and that and pain comes to show us that we have to take responsibility for the choices we make. And if we keep making bad choices over and over again without pain, then we have no, nothing to as a limiting factor. We don't have a negative feedback loop to say, you know, you're a martial artist. If you keep leaving your your hands down, you're setting yourself up for a knockout. So the question is, how many times do you got to get knocked out or get your jaw broken before you realize I got to learn to keep my hands up? Well, there's the pain teacher coming to say, by the way, you better get yourself in good enough shape to hold your hands up in the later rounds, or you're going to end up sharing your shoe size with the whole arena. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's so well put, bro. I, I'm, I'm so happy you made the time to be able to talk. I think it's going to help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It's Oh, I appreciate it. You know, I love sharing any time I can get with you and Mr. Sugar and send him my love. And I'm, you know, 
like I said, I'm a 60 year old man. I've lived through all sorts of this stuff. And like you guys, I was a fighter and I'm elite athlete on in multiple sports. And I've had time to explore women and money and all the things that get people in trouble and drugs and everything else. And so, you know, but because I always had a North star, I was always interested in what can I make out of myself? What, what, what am I capable of doing in the world? I don't give a shit what other people say. I want to know what I can do. So as an athlete, I always wanted to better myself, not, not necessarily to beat other people, but to see if I could better myself. So I never considered myself a loser. I always considered myself a learner. If someone beat me in a boxing match, then I thought there's my new teacher. They've, they brought the pain to me to show me where I need to learn. If someone outdid me in a triathlon, I studied what they did better than me. The ego sees themselves as a loser, which just creates a bunch of negative energy. So I think if we orient ourselves in life, instead of holding ourselves victim for the mistakes we made and see them as lessons, as long as we're learning and we're growing, then we know that's the nature of life. But if we get focused on all the negative all the time, then ultimately we, we just become a, a great patient for doctors and psychiatrists and end up on medical drugs that destroy us. And, and, you know, so we die not having lived. Yeah. I, I remember when we were at your house too, you, you said you felt that sugar and I are going to have like a big platform to spread a lot of like good stuff. And, uh, that's kind of with, with my martial arts Academy and, uh, my podcast and everything. It's just, Everything feels good when I'm doing that. So thank you for everything, brother. Uh, my pleasure. That feeling you're talking about, that's when your needle on your compass is pointing to your North Star. You know, a labor of love is sustainable, but a labor without love is not sustainable. So imagine someone whose parents tried to convince them to become a professional cage fighter, but they didn't want a cage fight. Well, that would not be a sustainable experience because the pain of it would make them just say, fuck this, I cannot take this. But when somebody loves the art of martial arts and it's a passion for them, the same injuries inspire them to grow, not give up. So I think the key thing I would leave you with is remember if, if whatever you're doing in your life, life isn't backed by love, then it's just labor. You're, it's not sustainable. But if you're doing what you love to do, then you will grow through the obstacles and the challenges. And even though they may be very tough, they will actually make you a more whole, more capable human being that knows that it's got the ability. And eventually you develop a toolkit to learn how to engage the challenges of life. But without love, you won't make it to the point where you have enough life experience because you'll constantly be avoiding the pain, blaming other people victimizing yourself drugging yourself and hoping to win the lottery <laughs> dude this has been the fucking best podcast again thank you so much hey we're gonna book a trip to come and see you guys uh real soon and meet the babies and you can meet sugar's little princess too i can't wait yeah let us know man you're gonna dig this new place if you like the heaven house wait till you see this place man i can't wait all right thank you so much paul i'll talk to you soon yeah lots of love to all of you and your team and all your listeners and Let's, we need to all work together to make life beautiful right now. Well, 
before people fall asleep and we're all in an electronic jail. Gosh, that's the truth. I know we could go off about 5G too, but we'll save that for the next one. Yeah, all right, bud. Okay, love you, Paul. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, I love you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Peter, gonna shuffle in. I'm gonna throw a two, one.